This is the Shift Podcast. Today on the Shift Daily Podcast, do Canadians really know what's happening in Ukraine? Get a better understanding from Dr. Balkan Devlin. He's an expert from McDonald Laurie Institute, and he helps describe the history and impacts of the conflict, why it's happening, and why it's really hard to comprehend it here in Canada. But not only that, that shows of force and strength through military action is still incredibly common in today's world about how to deal with political disagreements. Disco is strong, my friends. Disco is still alive with Handy Andy this week. Andy Barrard joins us with some groovy tunes a little confession about his childhood disco love apple's next big project with beats headphones if you're looking for headphones and flying cars that are getting certified to actually work plus are you okay with live tv this is the shift podcast are you okay and are you okay? We ask a question. Are you okay with this scenario? And then you respond on your text, 877-399-9898. Are you okay with live TV? Ooh, I am very okay with live television. I find I that it's really, really good when it's good. And when it's bad, it's really fun to watch. Uh, like, when I was doing reporting in school, I had to do a live interview and it was the most awful thing I've ever done. But when I go back and watch it, I can't help but laugh. It's just objectively hilarious. And I think there's something magical in, in that, in that capture of live TV. You just don't find that anywhere else. Maybe radio. I am definitely okay with live TV. Um, however, there's just a part of me that sometimes when, you know, day's been rough and I'm not feeling the greatest, I will YouTube things going wrong on live TV. Yeah. I just do it. I, I don't know. Absolutely. And I sit there and I watch them and I enjoy it. Sometimes I'll YouTube people maybe saying bad words on live right. TV. It's just, it's fun. And you know what? I work in live media, so I feel I, I feel bad when I see it happen and wonder what would happen. It's not you. Though. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I, know, but I just like to do that on YouTube. I am okay with live TV. I like it better now than it was before because even when you record the live TV now or the on-demand TV, you don't always have to sit there. Like, God, I remember the end of Seinfeld, man. Everybody had to make plans in the linear TV world about Seinfeld. Uh, but then, so we've got the elements of live TV happening. And at the same time, um, you can still record it or delay it or push pause if you got to let the dog out or, or whatever. So you still get live TV without having to have live TV. So you can see people doing live things. It's magical. That can be very embarrassing, as uh, Brendan Kelly just described there, when live moments happen by oops, and they do again and again. So just imagine, though, what that's like. I've never done live. Well, no, that's not true. I've done live TV hits, but I've never been responsible for them. I've been guest on them. So you're standing there. You're a reporter. You're set to do a live report. Standing by. You know, and it's like, thanks, John. We're here on the corner next to the whatever, whatever thing. And you've got to do that. Well, imagine this actually happened. Reporter standing on the side of the road, reporting on a water main break in the local city. And then that reporter got hit by a car. It actually happened to a 25-year-old reporter for West Virginia's WSAZ-TV. She was struck by a car during her live broadcast, but quickly brushed herself off and continued to engage with the camera, although quite stunned. Now we're starting to experience, unfortunately, in freeze-thaw, we see this, water main breaks. Oh, 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 oh my gosh, I just got hit by a car, but I'm okay. I just got hit by a car, but I'm well, okay, Tim. That's first um, for you I'm on okay. TV, Tori. We're all good. I'm okay. Yeah, you know, that's live TV for you. It's all good. I actually got hit by a car in college, too, just like that. Wow. I am so glad I'm okay. Yeah. You're okay. You're okay. We're all good. This is, uh, you know what? It's, uh, one woman sure you're man. Okay, We're good, Tim. Ma'am, you, sure okay? you are so sweet, and you are okay. It is all good. You know, I, uh, oh, Lord. So you... Uh, 
You know, it's my last week on the job, and I think this would happen. So you were bumped in. To me, Tim. Were you bumped down low, Tori, or were you hit up high? I couldn't really tell from the looking. Oh, I, I, I don't even. Do you know if I was bumped down low or up high, sir? I just saw you disappear. I don't even out of know. I don't even know, Tim. I, my whole life just flashed before my eyes. Oh, but this happen. is live TV, and everything's okay. I, I thought I was in a safe spot, but clearly, um, we might need to move the camera over a bit. Yeah. Um. <laughs> wow. Holy. She handled it very well. Well, you can hear the, the adrenaline, right? Like the coming oh, down, yeah. right? You can hear it as she's trying to collect her thoughts. And there she is on live TV. Now she's okay. That's what you need to know. The mm-hmm. anchor was on a split screen back in the studio and didn't really, it's like, well, that's live TV for you, Bob. Like didn't even really check to see if she was okay right away. He explained later, which in fact, he kind of tells a bit of a fib there because he says later he on Twitter that he wasn't privileged to her camera feed. Instead, he only heard the commotion on his earpiece. Then later um, goes and says, well, I didn't see it happen on my angle. So he, he right. So but you, they're trying to find mm. their way through it. Right. Like, how do you find your way through that? So it doesn't matter. I think he was trying to defend the fact that, you know, didn't check if she was OK for it. She just got hit by a car. Makes sense if he only heard it and didn't see it. Yeah, and it, they don't teach you that in broadcasting school. They teach you how to handle people, but they don't teach you how to handle getting hit by a car. I mad props for her just continuing to do the hit, mm-hmm. continuing to do the report. Mm-hmm. I'd be like, go back to the studio. I'm fine. Yeah. And another dude um, was a buddy was born at the zoo. <laughs> uh, <laughs> funny. Um it's amazing what happens and it's amazing what people uh see happen traumatic for everybody who watched it happen yeah. oh my goodness uh that's for sure she's okay today's show reports that yorgi did go to the hospital to get checked out she's doing fine she has not addressed the accident on her social media accounts yet though it is ironic that they um she did say that it was in her last day on the job uh, or last week on the job excuse me mm-hmm. that that would happen um that's that's also a thing so she goes, she's okay, not really saying much about it just yet. Probably probably good. Although we call that a live TV hit or a live radio hit, and it's possible to change the name. Mm, yeah, S- solidarity. Solidarity. <laughs> yeah. So let's look at some of the other cringy TV moments because uh, BK likes to look them up. So here we are. In um, – Gaza, this was very dangerous. Anderson Cooper has put himself into a lot of hurricanes <laughs> and wild places before he became uh, an anchor on CNN when he was just a reporter around the world. He was fr- He's from a very, very rich family. Maybe that's why he does it, because he just loves it. I don't know. But it's remarkable, including this moment where Anderson Cooper was in Gaza reporting live and a bomb went off very close to him killed, though there is one report now saying 11 uh, people were killed in in that blast. But we know 10 members of one family. Also, two media centers uh, built. Whoa. That was a rather large explosion. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) It's like when you watch the video, he turns his head and you can see the the, the half of his uh, face that's facing the explosion is just completely red. Like it's fully light up from this massive explosion. Mm. I, it, I can't believe he didn't even swear. I would have just mm. sailored the entire thing and then ran away. <laughs> this Dutch reporter was reporting on a boat. I'm on a boat, and then she fell off. We zijn hier in Kampen, een van de drie prachtige historische Hansensteden in de IJsseldelta. Want hier wordt binnenkort het grootste paasevenement van Nederland georganiseerd: Seel Kampen. Burgemeester, wat is er nou zo bijzonder aan Seelkampen? Als je de mooiste opvullen. Waar is dat Dan gaat niet goed. Deze kant op. Get her out of the water. Good morning. Um, Oké. Okay. Nice. So, just so you know, everybody's been okay. Every, she's okay. <laughs> yeah, also okay. Are you okay here on the shift? Are you okay with stocks or the stonks? I wish I wish I understood it. I, I I think I'm okay with the idea. I don't think the system works anymore. I feel like 
because of how volatile it is, there's probably a better way we can do it. I have no idea what that better way is. Maybe I'm completely wrong. Just as someone who isn't completely locked into it, like my brother or even my roommate who's selling some of his stocks so he can buy Lego sets right now. Oh, I wish boy. I could do that, but I can't. Pay income tax on those, just so you know. I think you gotta you gotta do the stocks these days. Money can't sit in savings accounts anymore. It doesn't make any money in savings yep. accounts, so you gotta do something with it. But in the stock market, it's gradually gone up over time, and it dips and up and dips, and you just gotta put it in and let it sit forever. If you put your money in in the 80s or the 90s, even with all of the ups and downs and crashes, you would be substantially richer today, no matter what you had ridden the roller coaster on. I am okay with stocks, although it is kind of weird the way that the emotion has clicked into the stock market. I mean, when the stock market was created, reports were published in newspapers. Insider trading was a thing that you couldn't do if you got the insider scoop. But in today's world, where on Twitter you have millions of followers, you can create drama and demand just by saying, this is a good stock, buy, buy, buy. And then the value goes up. Well, the internet taught us that with GameStop, right? The stock market can get obliterated by the simplest little thing. Welcome Peloton, the exercise bikes. For the second time, their stock value has plunged after a TV show character, not a real person, a character from a TV show, suffered a heart attack while riding a Peloton bike. Just a reminder, this is not a real person. This is a TV show character. Peloton is left spinning from yet another PR disaster. This time, a character on the popular Showtime series Billions suffers a heart attack during a Peloton workout. Sir, you're having a heart attack. We're here to just get I'm you doing down. a Peloton class. Sound familiar? Just last month on the Sex and the City reboot, Mr. Big died of a heart attack following a vigorous Peloton workout. And just like that, Peloton stock dropped 11%. At least on billions, the character survives. It's a small heart attack. I'm not going out like Mr. Big. Now the embattled fitness company is blasting the episode. To be clear, we did not agree for our brand to be used on billions or provide any equipment. They also tweeted, cardiovascular exercise helps people lead long, happy lives. Okay, that's from Inside Edition, by the way. 11% dip after the episode runs. This none of it is even real. And it affected the stock market. That's concerning. Very concerning. I hate that. The, it, we base, this, is basically, this is our world right now. Someone on the street can go, you know, eat a 3 million Big Macs, which just for clarity, I ate McDonald's while writing this story today. Someone could eat 3 million Big Macs and that Sidebar. contributes to a heart attack and dies. Nothing happens in the stock market. But on a stupid, well, I've never watched the show, on a TV show that some people like, that's pretty good. <laughs> well done, Someone dies good. and people think, oh, that's real. Come on. Yeah. Also, what? sorry about the spoiler alert about Mr. Big, if you didn't know, by the way. Probably should have thrown that one in there. Um, so here are some numbers to help you understand that. We're rallying uh, 440% in 2020 because pandemic. Where am I going to work out? Peloton shares tumbled 76% in 2021. Let me give you some numbers about Peloton and the uh, stock. So today closed at 29.71 US per share. Its lowest point in the day today was 26.72. Whoa. So that's the 11%. That's just in one day. If you go back uh, a year ago, so remember 26 bucks, 29 bucks, it was worth $157 a year ago and at its peak in 20 the end of 2020, $162.72 US per share now down to $29, dipped another 11% today because of a TV show. Yeah, there's, yeah, that's not, a, I am not okay with that. How is that okay? <laughs> that's, that's not okay. fair. So you got people that are doing research on when CEOs move from company to company and what the apps does to the stock price plus, you know, EBITDA and share value and asset value and potential sale, you know, stagnant market, $18 share price going to sell all of these things going on. And a guy in a TV show affects stock by 
Oh, that I don't think that's okay. This is the Shift Podcast. If you follow the news, you will know that things in Ukraine, well, it's, it's basically like, wait. That's it. That's really what's going on in Ukraine right now is, all right, let's wait. Uh, geopolitics is a thing that we can sit on the outside and we can look at it and go, hey, this seems really dumb. Why would they do that? But really, when you get into the expertise around it, um, it, it really is an amazing, amazing look. And from a friend of the shift, we've been referred to someone to have a conversation about Ukraine. Uh, it's Dr. Balkan Devlin joins us here on the program to talk a little bit about this. You're a fellow at McDonald Laurier Institute. You lead the transatlantic program and you must be busy or at least not taking a lot of breaks from work these days. Every 15 minutes or so, well, you yes. check in and see uh, what's going it on. It is sort of, both um, depressing in one sense because you always have to sort of see what's what's up, what's the you know the new thing that uh, Kremlin might be coming up. Um, but it's also as you, as with these things, it is a little bit you you get a little sort of dull after a little while because of the heightened tension and and that's always uh, always worrying because you go like ah, at some point um, things would go wrong and your attention would, uh, would, would skip. So yeah, it is, it has been a busy uh, few months for someone who's uh, looking at NATO's Eastern flank and, and what's going on. So the history, there's of course, Crimea where Russia basically just kind of moved in. And then there was Eastern Ukraine, which Russia just kind of moved in. And that was oil and gas. I mean, there was an awful, well, there, the, the Crimea one was claimed to be cultural. Uh, the other one was, I mean, oil and gas without a doubt. I mean, they basically took the high producing port. Um, can you help us understand? Because I mean, the look that we've had is through the media and what gets reported that way. You know, is this legit? Is there a bunch of Russian troops sitting on the um, sitting on the border waiting for a uh, thumbs yes. up? Yes. And that you know, when it comes to really the Eastern Ukraine, it was not really so much the, the resources, but it was an attempt to sort of destabilize Ukraine back in 2014. It was mostly, you know, just to ensure that, you know, Crimea things would go would, would go just fine and that their, their own sort of puppet leader uh, would, would go back to being president uh, in, in Kiev. But that didn't work out the way they, they thought. And that's one of the reasons they don't really sort of incorporate Donbass, the, the regions that are right now under Russian occupation into Russia, because it's really sort of expensive to maintain those populations and provide the economic benefits. Um, when it comes to the, today's uh, situation, yes, I mean, it's hard to really estimate the number of troops, uh, but it's ranged anywhere between 80,000 to 100,000 troops. But more, more, more worryingly, there's more wow. equipment and, and ammunition and material that have been prepositioned that have been brought over, um, which you know, which suggests that those troop numbers can very quickly ramp up uh, further, maybe you know, 150 or so, if need be. You just need to sort of bring in people uh, by by plane rather than bring in the tanks and the you know the, the howitzers, the the long range uh, you know uh, uh, missiles and stuff like that, because they're already being prepositioned, um, not only on the border with Ukraine on the east. Um, as well as Southeast, as well as you know, occupied Crimea. But now there are also uh, Russian troops and what they call a battalion uh, tactical groups, which is basically their you know, joint military uh, operation units, uh, we put it that way. So you've got the army and the Navy and the Air Force operating together, um, sort of. Um, and they're also positioned in Belarus in the West too. So you know, if, you, if you think, if you look at the map, um, it's pretty much surrounded on, on three uh, Iran, uh, you know, uh, on, on three three ways, um, Ukraine, and just waiting um, uh, to to move in or not, basically. So, do you ever go to work and look at your other colleagues that you know that are there, and you know that monitor other areas in the world and pay attention to that stuff? Do you guys ever just sit down and go? These governments know it's 2022, right? Like, this seems really old. It seems to be an old move, an old play, or are we just incredibly naive in it to not realize how the world still technically works? Uh, I suppose from the public, I got to give myself the grace of the fact that maybe we just don't get it. So, I mean, it's 2022. You would think by 2022, at least if there was political plays going on, it you think it would be 
you know, you know, diplomatic or economic or cyber or something like that. This notion of literally parking troops and tanks on a border. Uh, I seems mean, late. I think there are two actually. answers to it. One um, in the West, and particularly in Canada, we we are more. It's it's both a blessing and a curse. Um, being in a very secure geography where we don't really have to worry about uh, you know, troops messing uh, on our border uh, or, or having to worry about our physical security. And that creates a sense of uh, unbelief, right? Unreality when these things happen. But when you look at the rest of the world, um, use of force is still a very much uh, you know, the currency in, in politics. This, this you see in, in the Middle East, you see in, in, in Africa, you see in South America, you see it in Asia, and you see in, in Europe. Uh, in 2008, the, the Georgia, uh, Russia-Georgia war, 2014, the invasion of Ukraine, the, uh, Crimea, what's going on today. Um, it is very much the modus operandi of uh, a lot of the regimes in the world. You know, China, you know, constant, you know, the threats of invasion when it comes to Taiwan and other places. It is the modus operandi. And that doesn't mean that the other parts are not being happening, right? So you have the cyber attacks, you have the economic undermining, you have the sort of election interference, et cetera. But you still have the guns uh, and the tanks um, and, you know, the, the fundamental threat of, you know, harming physically uh, others to get your way. So, yes, it looks very 19th century, um, but that's still the worldview and the way things operate might make it right uh, sort of approach uh, in in a lot of, lot of these regimes. So, unfortunately, yes, right. it is uh, it is a reality. And we, we, we better sort of wake up to it because I think the complacency of, of the sort of being neighbor to the United States and in the right after the Cold War, the, the what they call the peace dividend and things going well, let most Canadians um, think that the world sort of really moved beyond the the killing and the use of force to get political ends. But that's not how it is. And uh, the, the sooner we realize uh, that's that's much more common uh, than the other way around, uh, the better we would be. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a grounding conversation, that's for sure. Now, I ask for your correction if I have this wrong. Uh, Ukraine is a uh, its a complicated place. It always has been. It has been for a very long time. It's a complex place um, faithfully. It's a complex place with its sort of gradient culture from uh, European culture into Russian culture uh, as it stems from west to east. Uh, so it's complicated politically. Uh, the bloodlines are complicated. There's a lot of old school mentality and traditional families that are still there from what I understand. And then, of course, there's the more progressives on the West End. So why Ukraine for Russia? I mean, if anybody was borderline Western civilization, um, I guess it better be worth it because... This one, people way pay attention to. Most people couldn't find Crimea on a yes, map. That, I mean, they know they do. about Ukraine. And why it matters for Russia, I would say there are two things. Um, one is this part of the long um, history of geopolitical thinking within the Russian tradition, going back to Tsarist Russia and continuing with the Soviet Union. The idea that Russia needs uh, space um, in terms of uh, you know strategic protection and defense and Ukraine is essential for it to prevent attacks um, uh, to to Russia from the West. Of course, that doesn't make much sense in the age of nuclear weapons. Uh, No one is crazy to invade uh, Russia, Uh, but there is also sort of the cultural imperialist component to it. Um, that is uh, you know, prevalent, at least in the sort of elite circles, in the, in, the, in the regime circles in Russia, basically not seeing Ukraine, and this is also true for Belarus uh, as well, not seeing them as, as truly sovereign states or truly distinct nations, but just basically little brothers, a little you know, Slavic brothers of, of the big mother Russia. So there is that sort of um, imperial look, there is that uh, condescending approach 
to Ukrainian identity, um, which always, you know, the, the Russian, throughout the Russian Empire and the Soviet Union with, with Stalin and Holodomor and, and the, 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 the genocide in 1930s, the starvation of Ukrainians uh, by the Stalin regime, etc., was trying to suppress that particular identity. So there is that inability to accept that you know, Ukraine may go somewhere else, may choose the West rather than uh, rather than Moscow as their you know shining light, um, and and that has always been part of it. So there's mm-hmm. one this old school geopolitical thinking about we need space, you know, invasion come from the West, so we need the we need Ukraine as a buffer. But also there is this cultural component that just cannot bring themselves up to the idea that you know Ukraine might might go somewhere else. And of course, as you pointed out, there are also a lot of cultural uh, ethnolinguistic. Uh, complications within Ukraine, but that's also true for a lot of other countries, including including Canada. Hmm. Yeah, well, and that's the thing is that it really is sort of the same. I guess I've always looked at it as um, these countries that you speak of, Belarus, Russia, Crimea, and all those. I mean, you know, and you sort of saw it unrelated, but in a similar fashion through, um, you know, the Czech wars and all that stuff. It was like, it was like the, the, the head office basically was like, okay, you went to college, you had your fun, it's time to come home, right? And like you played with the Western civilization, that's enough, time to come home, right? Like when you're when the kid goes away to college and you're like, okay, you had fun, now it's time to grow up and get to real life. So it sort of feels like that, that that's what happened. I guess I, I still don't understand, unless it's just flat out economics. I mean, you look at the stuff up north and minerals up north. I mean, that's clearly going to be a conversation with Canada, Russia, and many others in regards to mineral access, right? Um, there's, you know, there's a lot to be had uh, with precious minerals and what the future of uh, batteries brings in and around China and Afghanistan and all those places with those really precious minerals that are uh, seem to be in limited uh, mining supply, production supply. So there's a lot of this that's going on in the world. What do we not understand or what do we need to know? Uh, because like inside this, your look at it's different. What do I not see here? You know, I, I don't try to accept that just because I don't see it doesn't mean it doesn't exist. I mean, you know? I think it's not really sort of, like I said, it's not the economy component. It's the, the continuing occupation in Donbass and the support for the so-called separatists there cause, you know, Russia a lot of money. Um, they, they they put billions of dollars in in trying to sort of in, in invest in Crimea in the infrastructure etc cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, it costs money and any of these you know they they they've been keeping their troops since April right um, uh, that costs a lot of money uh, you know keeping troops uh, keeping them trained you know providing them the necessary resources and so that's that's a lot a lot of money and this has nothing really to do with whether uh, and you know reorienting Ukraine towards Russia would bring any economic benefits or not. It is really, um, like as I pointed out, two things. It's a, it's a cultural geopolitical thing, and it's a prestige thing. Um, Vladimir Putin, as well as the security establishment and the oligarchs, but primarily the security establishment that supports uh, uh, the Kremlin regime, uh, puts premium on the fact that uh, Russia was and continued to be seen as a great power, right? Russia needs to have, in their opinion, uh, a, a place at the table when it comes to uh, you know, security in, in Europe uh, as well as in, in the world. And they're very much willing to pay the cost of being taken seriously. Um, and that's this is really part of that. You know, how you cannot do what Putin thinks and what he, he would like to sort of point out is that you cannot do things in Europe without Russia, and we will make you listen one way or, or another. And that has a lot to do with that, that psychological dimension, the, uh, the, the former empire um, kind of mentality, the, the prestige that Russia is and should al- always be a great power. And Russia cannot be a great power without Ukraine uh, or Belarus in its, uh, in its orbit. Um, again, that, that really goes back to whole, I mean, it's very hard, you know, I, I understand where you're coming from in the sense that it's very hard to understand, look, look, it doesn't make sense. I mean, they're going to spend a lot of money. This is not Siberia. This is not, you know, where there's a lot of, uh, you know, minerals and oil, a lot of the oil and gas, uh, you know, resources for Russia is. It's in their territory. Why are they spending money? Why are they engaging in these things? It just doesn't make sense. But um, it does 
if you look at through the eyes of, of Putin, which, where he sees himself as the heir to this great power and sees the prestige and and the you know the station of this uh, of this country being uh, you know being relegated into a regional power, as Obama at one point um, called Russia, and that cultural geopolitical component is extremely um, important. Um, in understanding why Putin wants to do. You can always sort of agree with or, or disagree with the rationalizations that he's making up about, you know, being feel, feeling threatened, et cetera. But the threatened component really is about Russian status as a great power, Russia's status as a great power, rather than any physical danger to, um, to Russia. There is also, of course, the domestic mm-hmm. regime security component. You know, today, Russia under Vladimir Putin is a kleptocracy. You know, it's a small group of, of oligarchs and security, uh, uh, you know, services headed by Vladimir Putin that basically robs and pillages the country's wealth, stores it in, in unfortunately, in our, uh, you know, banks and real estate uh, in London and in. in mm-hmm. Well, and most people don't know that exactly, they're moving most right? of that money they're into moving, the Western world to make exactly. more money. Exactly. I mean, half of London is, is, is bought by Russian oligarchs. Uh, if you look at the real estate aspects, right? Um, they're, they're, mm-hmm. they're putting their money into you know Canadian companies and American companies and real estate and you know putting things in the bank and so on and so forth. They're basically uh, you know running a kleptocracy there while the ordinary Russians suffer. Um, but having mm-hmm. a, a working democracy on their borders. Not somewhere far away, uh, but just next doors with people that they really share quite a lot in common um, is also a danger to uh, Putin's mm-hmm. uh, regime. One of the things he's really, really afraid of is a sort of a democratic uprising that we saw back in the early 2000s throughout the former Soviet uh, region, from Ukraine to, to Georgia and other places, the so-called color revolutions. And uh, whether we find this paranoid or not, Putin is extremely worried about uh, such a such a you know p- possibility, and having a functioning, thriving um, uh, you know uh, democracy right uh, next door uh, is is a threat because Russians can turn and, and look at the look these guys are having. We share a, a similar language, we share a lot of in culturally. They can do it. Why are we stuck with this kleptocratic uh, uh, regime? So. Those things, the geopolitical right. component, the psychological component about the loss of status as a great power, um, the uh, understanding of 19th century geopolitics of, of you know, physical security, as well as the regime security concerns, the, the reality that uh, you know, Putin cannot afford to be seen weak and, and others, other regimes being succeeded right at the border uh, puts, uh, puts you know, the experiment of, uh, of Ukraine as a as a successful democracy, uh, poses it as as a danger to Russia rather than anything anything else. So, okay, I think what you've helped me clarify, and I'll try to communicate it. I've always sort of thought of it like similar to China, right? It, but I always put it in the I put it in the communist box, mm-hmm. which isn't really accurate anymore, right? Mm-hmm. But so what I think what you just helped me because what you helped me realize between those two particular nations and what they've been up to. Because I've always tried to look at it from the lens of communism, right? The old school, the mm-hmm. old stuff, the the philosophy of communism. And what I've realized with what you said, it's not the fact, it's not about communism, but it's about not communism, right? So if you look at China, for example, Hong Kong, Taiwan, and those, it's not really about what um, they're up to. It's more about they're not up to the same as us, and they could overflow their philosophy into where we are. What I think I hear and what you're saying is, is that it's not really the fact that it's, um, you know, about the philosophy of Russia. It's about the other philosophies rolling into Russia. And that's kind of what I hear, right? That influence yeah. from the outside starting to pour in. I think if you look at it, it would be naive to think that Russia is the only one that's up to the hacking game. No. Um, but it, even the hackers that we know. Uh, will tell you uh, that we have here on the shift, the hackers tell us flat out is that most of that activity is coming from those places. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're not politically biased to, no. to provide propaganda f- for against America. I mean, we all know that our governments are doing it too. Yeah. Just there's this tsunami of it from other places. But when we look at it from that place, then it you can kind of see the, you can see where they're building access and basically building 
walls, if you will, metaphorical mm-hmm. walls uh, to keep everything out. So this leaves me to this question. The Olympics are a couple of weeks away. Uh, the world will be watching, but the world will also be distracted. Uh, is that a ticking time bomb, if you will, waiting for this to happen? I mean, you can look at it in two ways. There is one school of thought that says, well, you know, Beijing Olympics are coming up and Putin wouldn't want to sort of put a shade over that and, and upset China, so he wouldn't do that. Another school of thought says, look, he invaded Georgia in 2008 during the Beijing Olympics. Uh, he invaded, uh, you know, Crimea and Ukraine in 2014 right after Sochi Olympics. <laughs> if he's going to do another invasion, it might be around the Olympics. Uh, so, you know, I think, I don't think that would matter to him, frankly. I don't think that would be part of the decision-making calculus. And just going back to what you said with regards to China and Russia as well. I mean, it's, it's really the authoritarianism, right? The authoritarianism of these countries and the um, authoritarian kleptocracy uh, nature of it, that they are not delivering. Um, the, even in China, the idea that what was the deal, you know, you don't get into politics and you don't really speak up to the regime, but we provide you high levels of you know, improvements in your living standards and whatnot. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, well, that's that's changing. And people see that, well, we don't have to uh, suffer <laughs> under you know Communist Party's uh, dictatorship to have high living standards. Look at Taiwan, look at, you know, mm-hmm. uh, look at Hong Kong. Um, there are other options. And that's the same story. With uh, with Ukraine and with Russia, right? What's the uh, the selling point for Putin coming after uh, after the Yeltsin years in 1990s? If you think about it, you you know look back to 1990s, it was really sort of a lost decade uh, for Russia, uh, and you know, very small number of people got got rich, but the overall you know life expectancy decline, life quality decline in Russia, etc. There was a huge chaos. Mm-hmm. You know, organized crime, really ran rampant, etc. And a lot of Russians look at Putin uh, as a savior in that sense when he came to power, right? Yes, he might be an authoritarian, he might be more dictatorial than others, but he provide law and order, right? And yeah. and with initial you know, increases in the uh, commodity prices and whatnot, Russian life uh, quality improved as well in early 2000s. But now, the, the fear is that when ordinary Russians look at Vladimir Putin, and they would say that, look, he's in a, in a still in the country blind, robbing the country blind. His oligarchs are doing the same. Our life quality is not improving. But when we look at our, our former sort of uh, compatriots in the former Soviet Union, those who develop closer relationship with the West, part of the European Union, look at the Baltic states, look at Ukraine that is turning towards the West. They do have a democracy and they're improving their lives. So we're not stuck in this a, a right. false choice between or law and order or democracy. Now, you can actually have both and economic uh, uh, benefit and growth uh, and prosperity at the same time. And yeah. again, that's a that's a big, 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 uh, big thing uh, for uh, uh, for for these regimes. And that's thus they need to build these digital walls. Um, Russia is very big on what they call sovereign internet. They really sort of try to create the conditions that they can wall off the uh, the Russian um, uh, internet from that. Same goes for the Chinese, the famous Great Firewall. Um, both of the countries use criminal syndicates uh, for hacking uh, across the across the board. We are, you know, not that we, you know, uh, we are, we're always playing a catch up in that sense uh, because it's always easier to find vectors for attack rather than defense without necessarily compromising the transparency and openness of your of your systems. We're not going to build walls uh, like they do. So we will always be more vulnerable than them, etc. But that's all part of it, basically cordoning it off and, and creating that sort of bubble in order to limit those influences and in order to secure, um, secure their power. Wow. Is it inevitable now, this Ukraine invasion, do you think? I mean, nothing is in- inevitable, but I think there will be some, uh, I would put, you know, if you ask me a particular number, I would say maybe 60% there will be a military action, 60 to 65%. Yeah. So uh, maybe two thirds, uh, there is a military action. The, the, the scope of that action is what I think uh, is, is not decided yet. 
a full-scale, you know, drive Blitzkrieg to Kiev, I would put that maybe 5%. Um, yeah. It's going to be extremely costly, human costs, material costs. It's just, and it doesn't require, you know, Putin doesn't require that sort of, uh, you know, let's get into the urban centers, engage in urban warfare, destroy cities, et cetera, et cetera, sort of uh, warfare to achieve his political aims. Which basically, well, that gets more expensive anyway, right? Exactly. But some sort of an action, right? Some you know, either long-range uh, missile attacks, airstrikes to degrade uh, you know, Ukrainian military capabilities, punish the, uh, the government in Kiev, and, and basically showcase that the West and, and NATO more broadly uh, is, 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 is a paper tiger and cannot really stop uh, Russia, what, whatever they want to do, uh, that's a lot more likely than some sort of a Second World War style, you know, tanks strolling down the down the you know boulevards in Kiev uh, kind of action. But again, that's in you know, the whole thing combined is perhaps you know, 60, 65 percent likely. So I think there is still time uh, to be able to deter Russia. Uh, though I'm, I'm I'm increasingly pessimistic that you know we have. The, the political will and and the necessary things yeah. to do so. Um, so <laughs> that's it is, a whole it, other week of conversation. Uh, for you, exactly, right? <laughs> exactly. So it is getting it is getting more likely, unfortunately. Uh, yeah. So it's it's more likely than not right now that that will be some military action. The idea is, or, or the, the question is, what will be the scope and where will the attack come from, and um, how Ukraine and the West can actually prepare for that. I think that decision is, I mean, fundamentally, really rests with, with Putin, and I'm not sure he made a decision but increasingly he's coming to a point that he will have to make a decision um because you cannot really build up hundred thousand troops uh keep them almost a year i mean the troop build up started really in, in april you know may um and and not do anything and move back um that you know what did you get you got yeah. talks with biden so uh yeah. so he would have to act or get real concessions that he can sell at home and that's not going to yeah. come. So, yeah. Okay. So I have two two questions. One is about Ukrainian people. One is about Russian people. Before we finish, um, uh, Doctor Balkan Devlin about Ukraine. So the first one is about Ukrainian people because of that mix of people that from the the Western Ukraine philosophy versus the Eastern Ukraine more Russian leaning philosophy. Civil war in Ukraine, is it a possibility just for the, because there are people in Ukraine that do want to go back to mother Russia, right? I mean, that's, that's a thing. And so, um, is civil war in Ukraine, um, a potential outcome here? And does that benefit Russia if they can just stir the pot enough that Ukraine creates its own problems? I mean, that's what they tried to do in 2014, right? With the, they tried to start up uprisings in, in, in Eastern Ukraine, um, they they managed in some parts of Donbass, uh, in, in Luhansk and Donetsk um, oblasts, but they failed in other parts like Kharkiv or Odessa because most Ukrainians did not support them. And again, I think the the, the, the ethno-linguistic composition is very very complicated. There are a lot of people um, uh, in in Ukraine who speak you know, both Ukrainian and Russian as you know, as fluently as possible. There are Russian-speaking Ukrainian nationalists, and there are mm -hmm. Ukrainian-speaking, uh, uh, you know, uh, Ukraine, the Ukrainians that are much more favorable uh, you know, to to Russia. So it is a much more complicated than in, in the sense of a West versus East. Yes, there are more uh, you know Western-leaning uh, in in the West versus in East, but like I said, it's it's a lot more complicated than than just uh, just that and i think if they failed uh, if you know if russia failed really to create that sort of a civil war which they tried to instigate in 2014 i doubt that they will be able to do so um uh, right now uh, the mm. the support for nato membership increased the uh, the 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 negative the if you look at it the people's views with russia uh, is is more negative than in 2014 etc so i think one of the unintended consequences for the invasion in 2014 and the illegal annexation of Crimea was to solidify the Ukrainian national identity. Among ethnic Ukrainians, among ethnic Russians, among Russian-speaking Ukrainians, as well as you know, Ukrainian-speaking Ukrainians, uh, that it actually solidified that uh, modern nation, uh, national identity and helped them to, to define themselves vis-a-vis uh, 
vis-à-vis uh, -vis Russia. So uh, I think they will find a lot less um, fertile ground uh, for a civil war uh, if they try to instigate one. Well, the, in the last 13 years since that war, uh, propaganda has become king for them, that's for sure. So that, yes. I would guess that would have an influence. So my other question about this is about education uh, in Russia. Now, here in Canada, you know, our blue-collar workers, myself included in that, uh, would be uh, very well educated, right? You don't, in order to be a tradesperson in Canada, you have to, you know, be educated. In order to be a truck driver in Canada, you've got to be educated. Like, you can't, you can't work. In order to be a farmer in Canada, you need to be very educated to keep up. Is that the case in Russia? And the reason why I ask is that, is the workforce as educated to be as critical of thinkers? Is this saleable in Russia to the people? Either way it goes. Uh, in terms of education, I mean, I can't really say much. I'm not a you know, Russian domestic politics expert on that, on that level. So, but, but what we know, um, is that overall the schooling levels are quite high. Um, you know, mm -hmm. Russians still continue to produce um, uh, good scientists. There's a reason why uh, a lot of them immigrate now uh, to Canada, to the United States, the UK, and you have a lot of people, you know, mathematicians and, and computer scientists and so on and so forth coming from Russia. I think the issue uh, is not so much, uh, and, and you know, from what I can see from completely from outside, is, is the content is not really... I, I would say, especially in the hard sciences, they're probably doing a better job at the you know uh, high school level that, than we do. Um, they at least learn proper uh, mathematics and, rather than sort of play, right. uh, play it out. I mean, I have a 10-year-old, so... Uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I, so you yeah. know how terrible the penmanship is. Uh, yeah, exactly, right? So uh, <laughs> over there, they still learn how to write in cursive. So, you yeah. know, uh, the, but um, I think what, what, what the primary thing... I, I would say there are two things. One is that the cynicism that is sort of really uh, became part of that political culture uh, going back to the Soviet times is still very strong. And, and and that comes with a certain fatalism to it, right? People go like, we just don't, don't really have much of a say anyway. Why bother? Why sort of engage? So people are disengaged and disenchanted and not really paying much attention to. The second is... The, first, the other thing we talked about, there's increasing um, sort of borders and walls being built. Um, this is true through the media, Kremlin control. I mean, there's literally no free or very limited free media in Russia today. Um, if When you are constantly being bombarded by, by the propaganda uh, that the West is out to get you and everybody you know, is, is, is worried about you and they're plotting against you, there is only so much you can take uh, without being influenced by it. So there is that domestic political propaganda component through internet, through television. Um, and, you know, you have to understand that, you know, yes, internet is, is et cetera, very important for, uh, for, for younger generation, but those who are open-minded and listening and wanting to learn are also leaving the country anyway. Yeah. I mean, the immigration yeah. rates are so high. Uh, the immigration mm -hmm. rates are high. People are getting out. And, and those who left, um, are getting their news from uh, from TV and and whatnot, which are heavily controlled by Kremlin. And thus, combined with that cynicism and fatalism, um, you have uh, you have you know uh, the, the majority of the public just basically disengaged and not paying attention. Like everywhere else, people are worried about you know what the, what kind of a food they can put under the table and uh, and don't really think about international politics. And especially true in a, in a place where they don't feel like they have a say at any rate and, and, and Putin wins the election, whether you like it or not. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, he wins before the election happens. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's, it's mind blowing. I, 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 I'm actually left with this. Um, have you been to Kiev and have you been to yes. Moscow? Yes. Yeah. See, so it's, this is what I'm actually left with. Like Moscow to me would be one of the most beautiful places yes. in the world to travel to. And I'm so terrified frankly to go i think of it yeah. an awful lot like going to beijing or something like that yeah. right like you never know what no. could really come of it no. um but kiev and, and moscow um let's try to end on a positive note mm -hmm. how beautiful are they and and which do you have a preference like which one would you go back to given the chance well i'll i'll say odessa um uh, is a third oh. option uh, on the black okay. sea coast a beautiful city um a very cosmopolitan city 
a, a very lively and, and, and full of culture and uh, full of good food and, and, and great people, uh, that will be the place I would go, especially uh, in the spring uh, and summer, which you can also go in and swim and enjoy um, really? uh, everything you have. Kiev is great uh, during autumn, I would say. Um, it's really, really beautiful. Um, in Russia, I would prefer St. Petersburg or Moscow. Um, Mm. Uh, St. Petersburg. Uh, I would, I would you know, personally prefer that. But I'm all, if you ask me, being Kiev and Moscow, I'll say with this. <laughs> yeah, that's good. I like that. That's again, that's beautiful thinking as well. So I, that's uh, that's even fun for me. My my philosophical self loves that answer the most. Um, this is uh, insightful and uh, bulk, and I hope that we can. I uh, hope we can keep in touch with this because more questions will come up, and it is so insightful to know that. You, I want to put it in my brain wants to put it into a box, right? Like it mm. wants to put it into a box of it's over oil or something. Um, you know, they have good apples. I don't know, but it is okay to, I'm learning here that it's okay to not get it and not getting it is probably not possible because I'm not from there. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think it's a yeah. different sort of mentality and, and putting yourself in the shoes uh, of, of the other uh, take some time and it, mm -hmm. and people do things that we find baffling all the time right so yeah um, that's it but this has been a great conversation and i'm always happy to uh, come back and continue our chat this is the shift podcast it's time to connect and to go all disco baby yeah. Now we're done. That's right, baby. It's time for Handy Andy Barrar, handyandymedia.com. Uh, Disco Andy, as I like to call him, with his uh, love affair for glow sticks in Las Vegas. How you doing, buddy? I'm good. I'm good. You know, I never told you this story, but uh -oh. when I was a kid, around five, um, I used to sleep over at my grandparents' house, and they used to have like a lot of these Hindi movies, and there was this one movie called Disco Dancer, mm. and it's about this kid who he's from this like village and he wants to be a disco dancer and that's his dream right and then he finally makes it and then he has a song that the, the lead song is called i am a disco dancer and what I, i'm gonna find the song i watched it on youtube the other day and it made me laugh and i thought about you because i'm like i actually wanted to be this guy when i was five years old so i have to yeah. find that song i am a disco dancer um it's it's Do you the remember funniest disco song ever Oh, is it by VJ Benedict? It's just, it's just, disc, it is actual disco. Oh, here it is. This is it. Brendan found it. It's a, it's got a, it's got a, <laughs> apparently a cat got hit by a car. As he arrives on stage. Oh, yeah. Yeah. See, look at this. This has got Feeling nice. the groove, yeah. baby. I can feel it. Yeah. Grab that like, special someone and make your way out to the dance floor, baby. Oh yeah, here we go. Now they're gonna get the fans in it. Here we go. This is a piece of Handy Andy's youth right here. Yes. It's uh I'm gonna skip it. This is a seven minute song. I feel like it takes a little while to build. It, yeah, oh here, he's got it right. Oh see, I imagine you dancing. Yeah! The lyrics are very, very deep. Say, music is my life. I love it. Awesome. Oh, see, that's fantastic. The music is oh, my life. Is that what sick. he said? Yes. Oh, I, my, I can't stop smiling now. Like, I, I can every see time that. I hear this, I feel like a little five-year-old, and I used to like pretend I was him in the living room. Like, that's the, there's a good reason why you call me Disco Andy, and you never even knew yeah. about it. Like, now didn't even I know, hey. Now, 1982, Indian dance film written by Rahi Masum Raza, directed by Babar Supash, um, and stars uh, Mithun Chakraborty. Yeah, apparently um, he was really big in Russia, uh, apparently, really? that actor. Yeah. That actor. Huh. Neat. Um, and uh, yeah, so that's 1982 was that movie. So there's you go. There's a throwback. There we go. It's uh, made in India, and it's uh, the language is in Hindi. Cool. Who knew, eh? That was fun. Yes, and I, that's what I love about YouTube. You could find anything, like old commercials. I'll just go on YouTube, and then next thing you know, you're down this rabbit hole. It's pretty much the story of my life, Shane. This is what I've been doing during the pandemic, going down YouTube rabbit holes. 
Yeah, follow along because uh, Andy's got his YouTube channel too, where you can see his videos. That one, by the way, was from Spotify. Um, the song. So if you want to get it on your on your Disco Andy list, there you can add it. So let's get started here. You've got some new videos that you've posted to Shiftheads.ca. Plus, you do have up on your YouTube channel about some of the topics tonight and going over it. So let's get started here. Earbuds. Um, Apple bought Beats. Yes. I'm a little bit surprised. They're starting to now integrate the Apple AirPod functionality in some of the Beats product. Yes. Um, starting to. Uh, but it's it still seems a little bit different. But th- these new ones are, are kind of exciting. You like these? Yeah. So we got to take it all the way back to 2014. That's when Apple acquired Beats Electronics. Now, for the listeners, they might recognize it because you would see people with these headphones with a big B on it. And they were very popular because... They were founded by Dr. Dre, the uh, hip-hop producer, and his business partner, Jimmy Iovine. And so they sold it to Apple for $3 billion. And a lot of people were wondering, what is Apple going to do with this like audio brand? And it turns out, Shane, it was probably one of their best acquisitions because they kind of recognized that like, like headphones, those are like the new like status symbols of, of and p- how people can reflect their personality and their style. And so what they've done is they took that Beats and they've integrated both the technology from Apple side and also their audio side. And they've kind of merged it like pretty good right now. And another thing was Beats actually got into the music streaming. They were streaming music back then. And they used that as the building blocks for Apple Music. So this, this um, uh, you know, that acquisition, a lot of people were wondering, what are they, why did they do this? But it, you know, now we're in 2022 and it made a lot of sense. I tried their new Beats Fit Pro. And these are wireless earbuds uh, for sport. So if you're active, whether you're a runner or you're, um, you know, weight training at the gym, basically, if you're moving your head a lot, these are the types of headphones you want. And so naturally, Shane, you know me, what am I going to do? Go and take take them on the jump rope. And so I, (laughs) I put them on and I, you know, I did all my crazy moves. And every headphone that I've reviewed in, in the past at some point in time would fall out. At least one of them would fall out. Mm-hmm. But these ones have some of the most superior fit that I've I've ever experienced. And you know, it just shows you that Apple money, that R&D money was in there. And, and they, they studied thousands and thousands of ears. And they were able to make it so that it's like almost a universal fit. So whether you have a big ear or small ear or a medium-sized ear, that little wingtip that kind of just tucks in your ear... Um, it does such a good job of keeping it in place. Like I was in Costco today and I just wore them because I'm getting so used to to having them on. And I actually forget that I'm wearing them. Hmm. Interesting stuff. All right. Check those out. The videos at shiftheads.ca, handyandymedia.com. And you can also like Andy's uh, Facebook group that he has as well uh, by connecting that way too. So both of those videos are there. Steve did text him, by the way, your coffee can Samsung projection TV. It looked really cool um, from your video too. So if you're curious about that, check out last week's video that Andy posted for us. Andy uh, doesn't work. He's <laughs> He doesn't have a job. This is his job. But Andy does uh, have, he shared with us, an Airbnb. And um, that is part of his uh, his life and, and his work life. Now, Airbnb has some incentives. Some of the different countries through COVID have actually had some great incentives for you to go live tax-free for a year and work in other countries remotely. Airbnb's kind of got into that game now. And it's it's an interesting way to try to inspire people to travel again. Not just travel, Shane, but what they're trying to do is get people to do rural travel. Because what they find is people, when you, when you travel to a country like Italy, a lot of people go to the major cities, you know, in Italy, like Rome, uh, maybe uh, Florence and, and what have you. But Sicily. there are all... Yeah, but there are so many different types of these small villages that aren't doing very well these days because people are leaving these villages and villages that have been there for hundreds of years. So what Airbnb did is they found this program um, that it was happening in Sicily where they were trying to give away houses in Sicily for $1. For one euro, Mm -hmm. you could buy these houses. So Airbnb partnered with that program to create this. Basically, they took this old house they got for like a dollar used an architectural design company to renovate it. And now they're running a contest where anybody around the world can go and stay there for free and use and basically live there and then rent out one of those rooms on Airbnb. And so you basically get free room and board and you can make the money that you would earn from that. So guess what I did, Shane? I actually applied to this. (laughs) Nice. (laughs) 
And like, it's not just like fill this form out. You have to write an essay on why you think that you should do this. And so I presented a very compelling case. I'm like, I have my own Airbnb. I'm a host. I'm a super host. Last year in 2021, Shane, I had 98% occupancy rate. There was only nine days of the year that it wasn't booked. And three of them were me that blocked it off just to have barbecues. So I'm like, I think I figured this whole Airbnb algorithm out of what it wants and what, what mm -hmm. guests want. Mm -hmm. So I put this big case and uh, June 30th, you never know, I might be living in a village in Sicily, Shane. I'll That's awesome. Completely off the grid for one year. And you know what? I think that would be a life-changing experience. And uh, I kind of hope I, I get accepted for that. Well, have internet though, right? Like we can still talk to you? I think I think you're going to still have internet. Yeah, I still right. got to come to the show, except I'll just be like milking cows and growing like <laughs> grapes. <laughs> and got little chickens. And, I mean, it's like my dream come true, Shane. I always said I have one I, foot in technology and one foot ready to become a farmer. And so this might be true. my chance. Well, you killed all the blueberries, so that doesn't bode well for you. I hope you didn't put yeah, that on Yeah, I'm not going to tell them about that. <laughs> yeah, don't tell them about that. Um, and also, it's Italy. I don't think marijuana is legal there, so don't, also don't tell them about your booming marijuana farm in your backyard either. Well, I'll tell them how Canada is so cool and we're so progressive and we allow, you know, to, <laughs> uh, you know, maybe I should bring some seeds there or not. Maybe not. Oh, God. Oh, this is, uh, if you're listening, Andy's joking, just... <laughs> Oh, yeah, I'm you just ruined of your chances. I'm not do that. It is a national show, hey Andy. Like, don't forget. <laughs> yeah, but it's not in Italy. It's not in Italy. So hey, we've had callers and we've had all kinds of messages with the time zones. We have learned that many people in Europe listen to shows like ours to learn how to speak English. So how's oh, that for uh, setting? Yeah, we've had all kinds of messages that we get, emails and text messages. Uh, people live and listen all over the world. In fact, uh, the invitation's got to be there now. Shane at it's the shift.ca or it's the shift.ca or 877-399-9898. Uh, where are you farthest away listening to the shift? Let's see what we can find uh, to prove that point. And we get messages from Australia all the time. Yeah, it's fantastic. I love the shift that audience. It's fun. And it really is around the world, which is kind of cool. HandyAndyMedia.com is his website. Uh, Handy Andy Barrar is here as well on the shift, um, chatting about um, the big echo in the background. My apologies. Uh, we've got that fixed up here. Andy has posted a video to shiftheads.ca, um, and we were talking about that earlier. Now, you did some skipping in that video. It was about the Beats Fit Pro earbuds. We chatted about that just now here on the shift. If you missed it, you can't catch it on our podcast. Uh, more topics from Andy. The Speedo. Got to hang on. We'll get to the Speedo. Uh, don't worry. He's not skipping in a Speedo. That part is good. <laughs> um, flying cars. When we were young, we were like, by the year 2000, we're going to be in flying cars, Jetson style, man. Well, not there yet, but it looks like, Andy, that um, starting. Shane, we have the technology. It has been proven and uh, it, it's coming. So they've already created this flying car. It's capable of going 160 kilometers an hour on, on ground and then flying up to 8,000 feet in the air. And what's crazy about it, and if folks, if you want to see it, you can go on the BBC. They have actually have a video showing this car in action. It, it looks like a normal car. And then these wings come out of the back. And then all of a sudden, it takes about two and a half minutes for it to get ready to go into flying mode. And then boom, this thing can take off. And so they have gotten certification for airworthiness by the Slovak Transportation Authority. And, wow. and so they call it the air car. And what they imagine is that the next thing they're going to try to do is fly this from London to Paris. So this could be a form of, of transportation. Now, they don't really know if it's going to take off, but they're already seeing like <laughs> air taxis. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh. There's a pun Sorry. that was unintended, <laughs> but I wish I could take credit for it. Um, they're, they're really looking to see if this could start an air taxi service perhaps in the future. But I can just see this like the ultra rich just buying new cars, they get stuck in traffic and then they just like take a little detour and boom, fly over everybody. I, it's just amazing that they even have this technology because like you said, this is something that you kind of dreamed about when you were like a kid, like we would have this like the, in the Jetsons, but the fact that it can do on land and in the air and then come back down, um, it's just amazing. And the fact that it even got certification just shows that this in the next five, 10 years, 
might actually be a reality, just like uh, we used to talk about electric vehicles being yeah. a potential reality. Yeah, I love that. That's pretty cool stuff. Um, what year was the Jetsons in the future? Anybody? Oh. Is it 2020? No. Hey, nope. George Jetson was born in 2022. I remember that. Um, so probably like 20... Like 26? 2060? Uh, George, Jane, Elroy, and Judy. Boy, Elroy. 2062. Oh, so we're getting there. Oh, nice. So we basically have to just get the air car by then, and then we're all good. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we're good. We hit our deadlines. Yeah, what did he do so anyway, George? I haven't watched that. Oh, my He man, worked for. Uh, the Cog Company. Um, he worked at the factory for the um, what's his name, and it was the Cogs, Cogsworth, Cogs. It was like a they did made like parts. Parts. So you still mm-hmm. have to work in the future, but you get you flying cars. Why you don't work now? What are you worried about? Well, I Jane, all I do is work, man. Like I, this is <laughs> this is the problem of when you have your own when you're like a like a freelancer is you never say no to anything that involves money, and. Yeah. Um, and you're always just working, like you, you know, even in your spare time. Your your spare times are side hustles that make money. That's so true. That is true. It's a story of my uh, life. We had one more piece here that we needed to talk about: Handy Andy Brar and HandyAndyMedia.com. Tonga uh, underwater volcano broke the internet to the island, among many other things. This is the thing: is that hand, I imagine Andy with a snorkel, some goggles, and a speedo and some duct tape dive. This and Andy's like, I'll get it. He dives down. And he tries to fix uh, the the um, the fiber optic cable under the water for Tonga. Yeah, How see, are you um, do it? A, a lot of people don't realize that there's fiber optic cables all underneath the ocean that connect continents. And and so this happened to Tonga because of the volcano. Uh, it has destroyed, or at least destroyed, at seem some part that line. And so they actually have this technology where they can send a little signal down the cable and figure out and pinpoint exactly where the break is. And then they have this um, ship that comes down and fixes it. But they haven't fixed it yet. And now they're using just a 2G cellular service. But because of all the volcanic ash, uh, they're having a problem with that too. So I don't think a lot of people realize that we have these cables underground. But uh, they're there and they're just kind of like the Ethernet cables that run our house. And uh, sometimes it needs fixing. And that's what they're trying to do right now. Can it be done, do you think? Oh yeah, it can be done. It, they, they're said that they get these breaks, uh, multiple ones a year, but usually it's because of uh, fishing lines or, or anchors hitting the anchors, ground. Yeah. yeah, it's usually anchors. Um, but this one's a little bit rarer because it was from a natural disaster, but they can fix it and they fix them all the time. It's just that they really need internet and the 2G, the wireless is really not giving it to them right now. So hopefully they can fix that as quickly as possible. Disco Andy, handyandymedia.com. Thank you, Steve, for the text message. George Jetson worked at Spacely's Space Sprockets. His job title was Digital Index Operator. Now we know. Uh, Handy Andy. Thanks, buddy. Thanks for being here. My pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Shift Podcast. Make sure you subscribe, rate, and review the show and share with anyone you like. Get it on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and CuriousCast.ca. 